Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. It's Questions Day. We do have, as we hoped, one big news story to bring you very quickly, I think. But also, Kieran, um, it's unusual for us, but we need to start with an apology arising out of um, our last podcast. Um, We were talking about the new Cristiano Ronaldo NFT range backed by a cryptocurrency, which I, because of an autocorrect error in the script, I referred to as the bin face. I said this currency was called <laughs> the bin face. Uh, you corrected me, but we decided to carry on calling it the bin face anyway, because we thought it was a better name for a cryptocurrency. And then we speculated whether it actually had the blessing of Count Binface, the wonderful independent space warrior and political activist. Um, and we we then got a lovely message from said Count Binface to say that he was a big, big fan of the pod. But could we please point out that he had nothing to do with the wrongly named cryptocurrency that was backing Cristiano Ronaldo's <laughs> NFT because he, want, he, he, he didn't approve of that sort of thing and, of course, couldn't endorse anything where it was possible to lose so much after spending so little. So uh, we are happy to make that correction. Count Binface had nothing to do with the mistaken cryptocurrency that we talked about. <coughs> it wasn't called Binface in the first place, but um, it made me laugh very much, his, his message. I'm <laughs> yes. only, and I'm only too happy that of all the people that we've you – know, Lawrence Bassini, we've never apologised to him. So we've, there's all sorts of people we've never – Steve Dale, no chance. But Count Binface, only too happy to make that apology. Yes, and if the count is listening, uh, if, if you want to come on to the show and to to, to tell us about the the Binface Manifesto for football, uh, because yeah, we appreciate that uh, we, we have reached out to politicians from other parties. Uh, we've had both Labour and Conservative politicians on the show, so in the uh, in the spirit of inclusivity, um, and also uh, the chances are that you you will bring less shame to the game than some of our elected members of parliament um we'd, we'd love to have you on the show we absolutely would yes any political candidate uh, whose policies include renaming london bridge phoebe waller bridge uh, <laughs> nationalizing adele and proroguing jacob rees mogg is uh, fine by me um our first news story kieran <clears throat> oh happy day oh frabjous day it seems finally 100 percent definitely that Derby County are now safely in the hands of a new owner who seems like a sensible person, who's followed us on Twitter, and more importantly, owns the ground as well. So we've it's been a long time, Kieran, but hopefully this is it now, isn't it? it yes. Uh, the administrators have sold uh, the assets of Derby County Football Club. Uh, in addition, the stadium has been sold in a separate transaction from one of Mel Morris's companies to David Clowes. Uh, the EFL have given approval. Okay. Um, so so they, they, there's lots of positives. Fans can now focus on moaning about season ticket prices and, <laughs> and, and pie prices and uh, you know, slack, slagging off the team at, at five o'clock on, on, on a Saturday afternoon to the local radio station, which is, which is what football is all about. Um, so yes, it's uh, it, it is good news. 
uh, it, it's it's taken a long time. It's taken too long a time. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, certainly the the initial uh, press release from David Klaus uh, is is a very positive one. From from the from the ferreting around that, that I've done, um, he is. He, he didn't want to do this in particular. You know, he, he's, he's a man that values his privacy, um, and and that's something which you potentially lose as, yeah. as the owner of a football club. But uh, the the alternative, which was the the real danger of of losing Derby County altogether, was too great. So uh, congratulations to him. We wish him all the best. Um, there's a few there's a few unusual issues I think which uh, you know hopefully will be resolved in in due time uh, you know certainly from speaking to some national journalists from from reading articles it looks as if the total price paid for both the stadium and the football club is somewhere in the region of 60 to 65 million pounds mm. now that's very good news for unsecured creditors that's very yeah. good news for HMRC so you know that, that is to be welcomed but I, I look at that and I say well, that does seem, you know, a very generous price mm. uh, because the stadium effectively went for twenty-two million pounds. So, yeah, we're talking thirty-eight to forty million pounds uh, for for what exactly? Yeah, you, you you had five, seven players in in contract, um, and they, they you wouldn't get big fees for them. So, so what else? Yeah, yes, you've got the name of Derby County. Yes, you've got a position in League One for next season, but. You know, Sunderland went for for less than that. Mm. Uh, Ipswich went for less than that substantially. Yeah, we were talking fractions of these prices. So that that um, that that needs perhaps a little bit more clarity, a little bit more transparency. It looks as if Stephen Pearce, who was Mel Morris's chief executive, is carrying on in the role. Uh, I think fans might feel a bit uncomfortable with with that mm. because. Uh, you know, and, and you know, again, for the sake of transparency, I've had communication with Stephen uh, over over the past couple of years. Um, I've always got on well with him. I think it's fair to say that that we agree to disagree, but we we do so on a you know, in a professional and, and polite manner uh, about some of the issues in respect to the club. Uh, you would think that a new person might want to perhaps you know break from the old regime, um, so. I think yeah we we could do with pure uh, pure openness and hopefully we'll get that from Mr. Klaus and uh, uh, you know I, I wish Liam Rossinia who uh, is a person that, that I've I've met on a few occasions yep. and he's uh, you know, a very very decent guy and a very progressive coach and manager yeah wish him all the best for next season yeah let's let's not pour cold water into the champagne. At this stage of the game, Kieran, let them have at least a couple of weeks. I understand you had a rather touching message from uh, the people at Radio Derby. Um, yeah, it was along the lines of, uh, it, it's not you, it's me, but but we never want to hear from you again. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 I get that. <laughs> Get that. I wasn't exactly uh, yeah, sort of. Yeah, it was sort of Radio Derby. Uh, oh, Maguire's coming on the uh, <laughs> Maguire's coming on the radio again, and at the same time they're giving out the uh, the phone number for the Samaritans. So yeah, it's, it's not exactly good for my profile either. Um, so yeah, I'm, and, and also I've got to say that people like Ed Dawes uh, at, at Radio Derby and Chris and people who I've got to know quite well. Uh, they have done all that they can. I know some fans have been frustrated with them. Some fans are 
still being uh, still a bit sniffy. Uh, yeah, I, 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 doesn't doesn't bother me. But on on the Derby uh, on the Derby fans forum, uh, apparently they're, they're blaming me and Rick Parry uh, and Steve Gibson for the demise of the club, which which I find. Uh, I find a bit bit strange because all, all that I did was was write to the EFL and say I think there's something wrong here as far as the finances are concerned, and I think Mr. Morris isn't necessarily acting in the best long term interests of the club. So, uh, but you know, each to their own. That's that's going to really annoy Mel Morris. He's, he's he's spent all that time trying to make himself the villain of this piece, and you you breeze in. Um, <laughs> I, it, it's just just for today. I. I can't tell you how happy I'm about the news. It's brilliant for Derby fans. Yeah. I shall I shall miss them. There's a sort of Stockholm syndrome going on. I feel that Derby kidnapped us about eighteen months ago and then over the piece as hostages, we've sort of slightly fallen in love with them a little bit. Um but yes, yeah, so let's uh let's let's not talk about Derby for quite some time. Um exactly. although I suspect Quantumar's name might crop up every now and again, <laughs> even if it's only on a letter from their solicitors. But there you go. Um, let's get into the questions. And the first one comes from Adam Bennett. Uh, and Adam Bennett's question reflects that a lot of people listening to this pod are fairly obsessed with ways of getting around FFP and how other clubs are doing it. Um, and Adam Bennett says, my question is about new stadium spending in relation to FFP, specifically money spent on groundwork before planning permission for Everton's new stadium. I've heard that the club spent around £50 million on the site, pre-build works, consultations and applications, and that this money went down on the books as spend. Now that planning permission has been granted as work has started, this spend will now turn into capital on the books and in turn add £50 million onto the books to help with FFP. Is this true? Or if not, how does stadium build with FFP actually work? It's a topical question, Kieran, as we heard this week that Burnley now acting on their own, are still intent on asking the Premier League to investigate how Everton was spending so much money and not breaching FFP rules. And it does look as well that Everton are in the business of selling players this summer mm. rather than uh, buying them. They sold, they brought Tarkovsky in, but they're, they're losing Richarlison and a couple of other big assets. Yes, Um with, with regards to what Everton have done, first of all, in 2019-20, uh, and this was prior to planning permission being granted, they spent around about £20 million on pre-work, uh, you know, architects, yeah. surveyors, uh, looking at the land. I think, I think it was at the, uh, the area in which uh, the, the stadium is being built, uh, Bramley Moor Dock. Uh, I think there's a bit more sand there than they would have liked, so mm. so they started to, to sort of do some pre-work there. Um, I, I was uh, I was I was at work uh, this uh, uh, earlier this week uh, at, at the University of Liverpool, uh, and and I caught a train because because we 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 had an away day uh, at Anfield, which didn't go down well <laughs> with the Everton supporting elements of the department as you can imagine all of whom decided to turn up in their Everton shirts and track suits just just to make it just just to get the message okay who, who made this decision <laughs> there's a few raised eyebrows um so so I, I caught the train uh, I caught Mersey Rail back and 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 you can see what's happening in terms of the new stadium and and yeah, a lot of progress is being made. So the, the 20 million pounds which went through the books in in 2019-20 um that that has gone through as a cost because you you can't treat 
that expenditure as as an asset until you've got planning permission. And that that has been put through as a claim for FFP, and they're perfectly entitled to do that. It's perfectly within the rules. I don't see an issue there. With uh, with the work that's been undertaken since the uh, since since the granting of planning permission, that work will go into the the overall cost of the new stadium, um, and none of that will will hit against profits because it's treated as an asset rather than an expense. So therefore, it doesn't go into FFP. Uh, it's 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 completely excluded. When I think the my the thing which is which I, I'm a bit peeved with is actually UEFA here because what UEFA have always done historically is to say that we will encourage what I describe as virtue spending. Virtue mm. spending is spending on infrastructure, which improves facilities for fans and, and players, if it's training facilities, um, spending on academy, spending on the women's team, spending on community activities, all of that is exempt from FFP. So that, yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. I think that's really progressive. Mm. Um, and under UEFA's new rules, that expenditure is no longer going to be exempt oh. from FFP, and you might say, "Well, why is that?" And uh, you know, and you sort of say, "Is there something Machiavellian taking place here?" Um, not that we're cynics, as, as we've, we've said on many an occasion. Um, and I think, well, hold on, this this is going to make it more difficult for those clubs that want to grow because now, uh, if if you are going to build a new stadium with a view to increase capacity, to that help you to bring in the more money, that will allow you to compete against the established elite, that expenditure historically has been exempt from FFP. It will no longer be exempt from FFP, which means that ambitious clubs are going to find life a lot harder if they want to to compete against the uh, the close shop uh, that, that is uh, European football at present at the elite level. And also what UEFA have done is that the, the new uh, financial fair play rules are going to be assessed from the 1st of January to the 31st of December, whereas historically they've been from June to June. So therefore you could always work out the numbers from the accounts. And you've got people like Swiss Ramble who do absolutely fantastic forensic analysis of this. They're just making life more difficult for people who want to scrutinise uh, the clubs and who want to scrutinise UA for itself, which is hugely disappointing. Oh, I mean, also the potential knock-on effect there for women's football, just as one example, is, is worrying, isn't it, Kieran? Mm. Yeah, because what we have seen is that if, if if you take a look at the accounts of of the the, the WSL and okay, again, stay, to be transparent, I'm, I'm talking uh, at a conference today. This, we're recording this on Sunday, uh, so I'm, I'm recording. Uh, I'm, I'm pre- presenting to a conference on women's football later today, and one of the things is the sustainability of the women's game and, and how do we encourage investment. Well, clubs historically have been willing to accept that women's football is in a growth phase. Uh, all of the clubs are losing money. But take a longer term view. Yeah, we hope to grow the game, which is fantastic. And if the, if, if the women's teams are losing money, at least that is exempt from FFP. Yeah. So yeah, we, we, it's something we're, we're, we're willing to deal with. All of a sudden, that's now changed. And uh, I appreciate that these are the UEFA rules and they don't apply to the FA. We don't know where, or sorry, they don't apply to the Premier League and the EFL clubs. I hope that uh, uh, 
that clubs in the Premier League and clubs in the EFL, uh, when they next come to a vote, decide to maintain the present position with regards to uh, with the, with these things, which which are, I think, is is, is good for the the greater uh, the greater good of the game. Good. Uh, it's good to clarify that the those UEFA rules don't yet apply to us. Great. Yeah. Um, our next question comes from John Lee. Um, it's a simple one. Uh, John says players are shown as assets, but what about coaching staff and the manager? Surely they have a value. What value would have been put on Alex Ferguson? Right. Uh, p- players players do have a value, but as far as the accounts are concerned, we only show cost and not value. Mm. So therefore, if you take Harry Kane, Phil Foden, you know, Alexander-Arnold, pl- players of, of that calibre who are you know, very high profile, they're, they're, they're internationals, because they've all come through the academy, they've, they've come through at a zero cost. So therefore, there is, there is nothing shown in respect of them as far as the accounts are concerned. When it, when it comes to other players, what you do is that you, you capitalise, you show in the books the, uh, the compensation paid uh, for the player's registration, and that's spread over the, the registration period. Yeah, we go back to our old friend, amortisation. In respect of managers and coaches, that doesn't tend to be the norm. Okay, you know, you've got the likes of, uh, you know, if, if we go back to, to Andre Villas-Boas, who, who went from Porto to Chelsea, that was a, that was a compensation fee of £13.3 million. Now, in theory... Chelsea perhaps could have spread that over the life of the contract, except of course they they sacked him within six months. So yeah, that had gone. Uh, I, I know Brighton paid compensation to Swansea for Graham Potter. Could they spread that over the contract? I think conceptually they possibly could, um, but uh, you know there's not that many managers who are going from club to club uh, with with large uh, large fees. And remember the the average shelf life of a manager. Is is two years, mm. so you know at most you'd be doing is spreading it over two years. So for the likes of Sir Alex, uh, you know he 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 left uh, with the with the good wishes of the people of Aberdeen to go to Manchester United. I don't think Manchester United paid compensation for him at the time, so therefore there would have been nothing in the books. Uh, and it just goes to show that you know how nonsensical the accounts are because they do show cost rather than value, and that's why they significantly undervalue clubs. Uh, because the, the, the biggest assets of the clubs, which you know, clearly we've got the playing staff, but also things like the you know the loyalty of the fan base and uh, and, and sort of the future the future hopes and fears and dr- and dreams of of fans, uh, it, it, it's impossible to put a number onto those. Mm. Uh, now, our next question comes from Stuart Mackenzie McIntyre. Um, which is the name of the day. I, it, it's quite possible that Stuart Mackenzie McIntyre lives in a bed sit in Ipswich, but I like to think <laughs> he actually dictated this question to his gilly whilst he was doing a spot of fly fishing in a lovely, clear Scottish river. Um, <laughs> wherever Stuart Mackenzie McIntyre is based. It's an interesting question. Bear with us because it's, it's a slightly long one, but it's worth uh, getting to the end of. Stuart Mackenzie McIntyre was thinking about Tracy Crouch, so... You and he have a lot in common, Kieran. Uh, <laughs> probably quite distracting. I, I got a message from from Tracy on Thursday, um, which, if I took out the, the, all of the swear words, it probably <laughs> had said I did, uh, and that's it. 
<laughs> uh, and I believe the hashtag was winning at life, wasn't it? When you asked, <laughs> yes. You, you asked how a particular parliamentary committee had gone. That was very funny. Um, but Stuart said that um, he was thinking about Tracy Crouch's comments on a pod about the way the EFL had seen the direction matters were moving and the Premier League had not, uh, just in terms of sustainability of the game, I believe Stuart's talking about there. And Stuart said, I was wondering if it would help the Premier League to focus their minds if the following could take place. With any new, within, I beg your pardon, within any new legislation to be introduced on the back of the report, a new VAT product code and VAT charge, say 25%, on the fee to be paid for the registration of players' contracts at a Premier League club, when the previous registration was at either another Premier League club or a non-UK club. The government could then use that additional VAT collected over the standard rate to provide grants to men's and women's grassroots football. Using VAT would also mean that the additional income is paid straight away, even when the transfer fee agreement allows for a spread of payments. So basically, Stuart's saying, could we charge Premier League clubs more VAT and spread that around? And then he says, as an aside, would Kieran know if most football clubs are net VAT payers or VAT refund receivers? So, of course, I've made a mental note to talk to Bobby Numbers tomorrow about the idea that there are <laughs> VAT refund receivers. No one's told me that's possible. How can that? I, I, you know, VAT is my bet noir, but I've very much only ever been a VAT payer. But it's, I, I, I think it's a really interesting question. For, you know, if Stuart said, if if the government, if Tracy Crouch and the government are serious about this, then then would it be possible to to, to up the VAT rate on Premier League clubs and spread that money around? Um, it, it it would be. Um, I think it might set a, a precedent for other industries in terms of changing VAT rates, which could make things life just a bit more complicated. If, however, we go back to, to Tracy Crouch's fan-led review, and this is also something we, we've discussed with, with Gordon Brown, we've had a couple of conversations with him, mm. um, in, instead of having a separate VAT code, why not have uh, a, a levy on transfers for clubs from the Premier League, and this this has been suggested. So, so if if uh, Premier League clubs sign players from other Premier League teams, they have to pay a levy. If they if they sign players from overseas, they have to pay that levy. If they sign players from the Championship, they don't. So this would this would this would encourage uh, you know, more traffic potentially mm. from EFL clubs to the Premier League, which would benefit them. Um, the the levy. Raised on intra uh, Premier League uh, transfer fees could go into grassroots, could go into sporting football. So that that is something certainly uh, which uh, is is on the radar of uh, I think the people who are who are you know behind the uh, proposals for the independent regulator. We we'll have to see what happens as far as the white paper is concerned. At the same time, you know, you and I we, we had a conversation earlier today and. Uh, the, the Premier League is doing all it can to deny, discredit, uh, delay uh, all progress through through using lobbying agencies mm. and, and by by giving crumbs from the table uh, in terms of some of the proposals uh, of of the fan led review. Um, so so that that's certainly worth considering. Um, secondly, with regards to Stuart's question, uh, in respect of our our football clubs net payers or or net lean, net in receipt uh, that they are 
they are very much net payers because they charge VAT on tickets. They charge VAT in terms of the broadcast deals. They charge VAT to their commercial partners. And, and of course, they pay VAT uh, in respect of transfer registrations as well. Um, so that's all of the VAT money that they collect from their sales. Their biggest expenditure is wages, which are not part of VAT. Um, so, so they they are very much net payers. Um, but if if again we're we're looking to to generate money, um, yeah, we've seen uh, leaked I think to the press uh, over the last three or four days. And uh, yeah, again, you and I we've had this discussion on the show a few times. Um, the the ban on front of shirt advertising yep. Yep. is is likely to evaporate. Yep. Uh, you know the, the proposals. Uh, are likely to be watered down. You know, perhaps a a voluntary ban, uh, which which yeah, there's there's simply not enough appetite for it. Um, so, uh, so so yeah, the the, the gambling industry. Uh, I know people say, you know, what, why have you got such a beef against the gambling? I've got, I've got no beef against the gambling industry if it behaves in an appropriate manner. Um, but it it doesn't. Um, in my view, in, in with regards to its its business practices, and, and that's that's what annoys me. Um, but it, again, let's go back. The horse racing industry is is funded via a betting levy. Football is the country's national sport. Mm. There is a very good case, in my opinion, for having a, a gambling levy on football bets, for, and that money then gets distributed. And in my view you split it between the EFL and grassroots football because those are the areas that we need most. Um, that would help to to address the issues of the uh, you know the, the imbalance in in uh, in distribution of money um, and, and if combined with better cost controls within the EFL, I think that could certainly make a difference. And, and you know, and, and I've I've crunched all the numbers. I've I've given them to. So should we say we can? I've given them to people um, and. Uh, and, and I've, I've, I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I've had a mixed response because yeah. the gambling industry has a, has a very, very strong voice and uh, is is very, very generous with its time and uh, and uh, uh, you know, opportunities to people to listen to it. Two things arising from that, Kieran. Firstly, as we know, the the attitude of most Premier League clubs, certainly the top six, top seven, top eight towards an independent regulator is pretty much over my dead body. And mm. um, what's worrying about the government, within a very short space of time, announcing their, they called it, important uh, ban on shirt front advertising by gambling companies, have backed down in the face of pressure from gambling companies and Premier League clubs who say, well, there's no one else who can afford the, the money we need to sponsor the front of our shirts. So that doesn't bode well for them standing up to the clubs who don't want an independent regulator. And, and secondly, and I ask this question more out of sorrow than anything else, Kieran. But I don't, you know, I don't understand VAT full stop. And last time I said that, people very kindly tweeted me with simple, and I still, it doesn't work. I don't understand it. But I, I, I understand even less the idea of VAT refund receivers. How does that even work here? And is that a business model? No, no, it, it's not. It, it, it's it's a case of what do you do as your business. So if you supply, if you were involved in you know energy, if you were involved, perhaps uh, you know, uh, uh, and I'm not, I'm not I'm not a VAT expert. It's a long, long time since I thought it. But let's say that you're working as a school uh, or uh, some somewhere in education, you don't tend to charge VAT on your courses. 
So right. therefore, you're not collecting VAT from your customers, but you are still paying VAT because you're buying stationery, you're, uh, you're right. paying oh, fuel. So, so the way that VAT works, it's worked on a net basis. It's the VAT that you collect from your sales less the VAT that you pay on your purchases. Now, if your sales are non-vatable, you're not collecting anything, but you're still incurring the cost. You're still paying the VAT yourself. So therefore, you put in and, and you get that money back. Um, you know, it, it, it is a system which has logic. Um, if, you, if, if you Google, and, and don't tell anybody do this uh, if they've got any sense at all, if you Google VAT carousel fraud, um, unfortunately, that the system uh, is, is targeted by, by fraudsters, uh, just as, as we saw with, uh, uh, with, uh, with the furlough scheme and, and, and other mm. things during the pandemic. Um, so it, it's, a, it's, it's a constant battle for HMRC to ensure that the, the right amounts are being paid. But you, you, can, uh, you can end up actually with effectively with VAT refunds on a regular basis. Well, why are people who are not charging VAT for their products even VAT rated then? Um, well, VAT registered. Well, you, you, the reason why you do it is is because you do get money back. You know, oh, if right. I'm oh, if, if I'm if I'm buying, uh, you know, you know, if I'm buying, say, university, I'm buying stationery. I've got got my heating and lighting costs. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm employing consultants. I'm employing lawyers and, and accountants, just like all businesses do. They're all charging you VAT. If you're not VAT registered, then you just have to take that on the chin. Oh, so yeah, therefore, okay. if you do VAT, right. register for right. VAT, you get to recoup the money. Right. Okay. So it is a sort of business model in a way then. People are, okay, never mind. We'll be here all day if I keep <laughs> trying to understand this. Uh, Craig Hall has our next question. That's a terrible thing for somebody who's hosting a finance pod to admit, isn't it? Uh, we'll be here all day until I understand this, but that's probably part of the charm of this podcast. Um, uh, was, this, was that Findy coming in or BAFTA going out? Um, no, I think it was BAFTA going out. I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Craig Hall says, we hear a lot about clubs taking the option to extend player contracts for, say, an extra year at the end of their main contract. Is this solely the club's option to activate, or does the player have to agree and sign? Um, when when the initial contract is signed by the player, the club, um, and, and their representatives all of the all of the terminology has to be agreed so that would be the the potential option as well um from a club's perspective the reason why clubs like uh option options uh is that it 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 protects the transfer value of a player so if we take a look at the Paul Pogba situation uh Paul Pogba signed for Manchester United in I think it was in 
2016. Uh, you know, people might remember him as, as France's third best midfield player in, in Euro 2016. Um, and therefore, that's why I pay Manchester United paid a world record fee for him at the time. Um, but um, the, the advantage to the club is that if Paul Pogba was playing really well and he hadn't signed a contract extension himself, uh, then, you know, season 2021, the, the final year of a player's contract, we know that the value falls. By having that extension option and triggering that, it effectively says, well, a player who could leave in 12 months will now can't leave for 24 months. And that helps to bump up the value of, of, the, of the player transfer. Um, at the same time, if, if the player has been an absolute disaster, uh, and Paul Pogba wasn't. Yeah, let, let's be honest here. He, he didn't. He, he didn't rip up trees. He, he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't a disaster for Manchester. It's expensive. Um, if if the player had been really poor, it, it saves the club committing itself to that final year of, of wages. Um, so that that's the position from from the club's point of view. As far as the player is concerned, what will normally happen is that the, uh, the the contract option is normally linked to specific conditions. So it's you know if uh, if you've played twenty matches in the season, then it, you you effectively get an automatic rollover uh, if if you want to take that up, and, and the that protects the player because he says, yeah, I've played well. Um, you know, play, players have got. Yeah, many players have got families, they've got financial commitments and mm. so on. So it gives them a little bit of protection. It, it can work against uh, the player, though. So, you know, you and I, we, we, we both know in respective clubs uh, where you say, well, why, why has he not played, uh, you know, recently? He was, he was in really good form and it turns out that the player's got a clause in the contract, whereas he plays 30 games a season or 25 games a season. So he gets to 29. The, the club doesn't want to commit to a further year of wages. Yeah. So, so the manager is called into the uh, is called into the offices of the chief executive and says, uh, we don't want to go there with that player. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think there was a famous one at, at Leeds United uh, mm. in- involving Seth Johnson, from what I, I, I recall. Mm. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it, and, and that's that's a real shame because you know, ultimately, you know, you, it is part of your professional career, and you're being denied the opportunity, which under normal circumstances you, know, you would be playing on merit due to uh, financial arrangements and contracts. Mm. Uh, Jake Doyle has a cunning mind, I think. <laughs> he's also kind I'm, I'm almost reluctant to ask this question because I, I might suggest to Jake that he saves this as a business idea. Um, but Jake says, are there rules in place regarding the advertisement hoardings around the perimeter of the pitch? If so, what is to stop a company paying a premium to have their advert suddenly appear when the ball is in the final third? This would have their brand almost exclusively seen on highlight packages. That's a good idea, Kieran. It, it is. It is. And, and the thing is, Jake, for all we know, that might already be the case. Yeah. Because you know the, the, the marketing industry is is doesn't tend to miss too many tricks. Mm. Um, yeah, we're already aware that the perimeter advertising that we physically see when we attend matches isn't necessarily what viewers see in different countries around the world mm. because um, you know such is the uh, such is the capabilities of, uh, of of the broadcasting industry that you can now have uh, you know in for, for domestic you know, 
domestic viewers watching on Sky or BT Sport or Amazon, wherever it's going to be, um, you might have one set of adverts. But if you're watching in South Africa and you're watching in Thailand, if, you, if you're watching in the States, you, you might be getting uh, more tailored advertisements. And, and, and this is fantastic because it effectively allows um, the clubs and the marketing departments to to get double bubble mm. uh, because you know who, who's going to uh you know who, who in the u.s is going to be interested in adverts for you know, you know the, the post office or or, or worthington ale or something like that <laughs> not that's worthington ale still exists you know, my knowledge of alcohol um so I'm, um, I'm not sure that i'm not sure the post office is doing too much advertising around <laughs> around old trafford on a match take here and even comes to that or, or yeah, well, having seen the price of a stamp recently, I, I can't stand Yes, away. I bloody have. I, that's, it's, it was a it was a Tony Hancock moment. Is that a, what a point? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, um, sorry. Yeah. So uh, go, going back to, to Jake's position, um, I, I think this this could be something uh, that could be done, uh, and especially you know, if a goal is scored, then all of this you know you could have adverts coming around. You know, this goal is sponsored by such and such. Hmm. Um, but remember. When it comes to advertising, for every winner, there's got to be a loser. So if, if somebody is prepared to pay a premium for uh, yeah, the, the premature advertising where the ball is currently located, and yeah, we, we've seen the advancements uh, that are being made with regards to this, this new sort of virtual reality augmented VAR proposals. Uh, so therefore, if, if, if you've got trackers in the ball, that could be easily linked to, to the perimeter advertising. But if, if I was, if I was a, a normal advertiser and, uh, you know, say, oh, so, so my, my product's being advertised at the other end of the pitch where the ball's not going, there's, there's going to be, you know, 30, 40, 60,000 pairs of eyes not looking at that advertising hoarding for the whole of the 90 minutes because everybody's following the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could see other advertisers saying, well, well, why do we bother? So I think we'd have to be a little bit cautious here about how, how this, this uh, went through. A, a couple of years ago, it took us quite some time to persuade a friend of ours that, that the Nat West advert on the pitch during a Lord's test wasn't actually on the pitch. It, yeah. it was only on the screen. At one stage, we thought we were going to have to take him to Lords to, to show him <laughs> that this was a miracle of the broadcast. It's really interesting. And also, because oh, Lords and Miracle, I like that. that oh, yeah, I didn't really. It just pours off me like sweat cube. We even, put, <laughs> we even pointed out to him because it was kind of like standing up. I said, the bowler's going to run into it if it's actually on the yeah. ground. But it's, he just couldn't get his head around the fact that TV were able to impose these sort of logos. Johnny Foster, uh, talking of Worthington's, for Worthington, Johnny Foster. I don't think I don't think Worthington's does exist anymore, Kieran. To be honest, I'm sure clearly. Really. Um, uh, you could have a nice pint of mead instead. Mead's still going. You can get mead, especially where you, I imagine the Sussex is up to your eyeballs in mead where you are. Oh yes. Um, Johnny Foster says, "How do arrangements for larger clubs such as Arsenal come about to use lower league grounds such as Boreham Wood to host their reserve games and ladies' teams?" Is this a good source of income for the smaller clubs? And so is it worth their while to keep up with the maintenance to keep those grounds attractive? What sort of income would Boreham Wood, for example, get from this? Right. I, I have looked at Boreham Wood's accounts. I suspect I was the only person at uh, at 8am on a Sunday morning <laughs> going on to the company's house website. Okay, Boreham Wood Football Club. Um, uh they don't actually show their rental income, but uh, it, it was uh, 
it, it was interesting to, to look at the, what Bournemouth have been saying. I think Arsenal have paid them £100,000 as a contribution towards uh, a new stand and also uh, towards uh, training, facility, uh, training, training rooms. So it, it's certainly beneficial from the club, which is in receipt of the money. Um, from the club, which is hiring out, yeah, the likes of Arsenal, I think Chelsea, they paid around about, they, they paid money to, was it AFC Wimbledon? Around was it about about seven million pounds for, for Kings, Kings Meadow. Homes, yeah, Kings Meadow. Yeah. So you know, th- there are certainly benefits uh, for the club in receipt from the club that's paying the money. Um, they they get somewhere where football can be played in, in a what you might call a proper football environment. Because if uh, if if you've got an under twenty three or an under eighteen match which is taking place um, at the sort of you know, the normal training facilities, first of all. It is literally being watched by two men and a dog, mm. uh, and, and, and uh, that, that's about as far as it goes, uh, which isn't good, I think, for players' development. Because I've, I've watched some uh, under twenty three games at the Amex, and yeah, yeah, there's not a big crowd there, but you, you do, you know, one 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 or two stands are open, and uh, yeah, there's a bit of atmosphere, and it, from the players' points of view, you know, they get to play football in a football stadium, and and that is part of the the environment uh, of of their job. Mm. Um, it also uh, means that uh, you know, if, if you've got the, the under-18s or the under-23s playing and you've got the senior team and they're being coached, the last thing you want is uh, you know, eyes and ears from other clubs at your training facilities. Um, mm. So, so it, it, mm. it's it's separation of facilities, which I think I think there's some genuine benefits from. So, uh, as, as far as this is concerned, uh, everybody's a winner. You know, the the uh, the groundsman at the main club. Um, uh-oh, Finley's just come in. Um, I'd like to say that as a result of raging inflation, we're now having to use snide wonky chomps from, from Aldi instead of the regulars that are going up in price so much. Oh, my God, this, you're joking. This, 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 is, this is the inflation spiral that, that people aren't talking about. What are they, what are they, uh, obviously, they're not called wonky chomps. What are they, winky chomps? <laughs> something, something with some very – Wonky yeah, chomps? Yeah. Some, some, <laughs> typical Audi, but uh, he, he seems happy enough. He's, he's uh, uh, but I, I, we, we've not told him. Yeah, we hide the wrappers. Kieran is a clever dog, but I, I suspect he can't read quite yet. <laughs> yeah. You need to hide the wrappers. I think that's more Gale, really. That's more the Baroness deciding that she doesn't really want Audi stuff in the house, but needs must when the devil drives. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, how did we get? We were in Boreham Wood a minute ago. Now we're oh, in, we're in Boreham Wood. Yes. Now we're in Aldi buying winky chumps. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. Why that? Why that email from BAFTA never comes to us? It's always, it's always, it's always been a conundrum for me. Ah, well, but, but, we've we've run out of steam on that question. Should we move on to <laughs> next one? Yes. Let's. Yeah. We got, apologies for that, Johnny. We were going so well, and then we got interrupted by a dog who can't read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have three questions left. You and Morrison asked the first one, um, and again, it's it's about something that fascinates our listeners, which is why I'm always happy to try and clarify it again. And it's about kits, which again is why I'm always happy to ask the question. Uh, you and starts rather sadly by saying, "According to my dad, I'm sad because I collect football shirts." Will you tell your dad that he's the sad one here? You and you tell him to listen to this pod, and we'll put your dad right. Um, but Ewan says, at least I know I'm not the only one, quite correct, Kieran, for example, because uh, you often hear fans discussing the value of certain kits they have due to age, iconic moments, 
etc. Now, my question is in regards to remakes. Score Draw, for example, is a company that remake these classic kits, and they seem very popular. During the Euros, for example, the 96 England and Scotland kits seemed as popular to wear as the current 2021 kit. My God, we have got a backlog of questions, haven't we? <laughs> 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 Mother. Um, how does this work financially? There's obvious differences, for example, the lack of manufacturer logo at the design is the same. Is Scoredraw paying a fee to Umbro to use it? Is it to the FA? And why wouldn't someone like Umbro just remake some of these old designs themselves when there appears to be a market for them? As I say, Karen, this is a question that does come up on a periodic mm. basis, but it indicates the fact that the kits, rather than amortisation, is, is what fans are, are kind of obsessed with. The economics of football kits is is something we haven't... We, we, we haven't really fully discussed because we haven't got time to do so. It's a, it's a specialist pod, but it does fascinate fans. And this this idea of um, remaking old kits is something we get asked a lot. Hmm. Well, um, as far as Score Drawer is concerned, if, if you go onto their website, um, they 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 say you know, everything has been licensed, right. so therefore they will have paid uh, a a fee to the club for the use of the the club badge. Um, the uh, potentially uh, assuming that the likes of Umbro and Adidas and so on have some form of intellectual property deal. Now that may have expired ah, because ah, intellectual right. property deals yeah. are normally fixed for a period of time. So, oh, okay. so that may have expired. But if it hasn't expired, again, they will have had to pay a license fee. I, I do remember Umbro uh, itself um, uh, s- uh, selling uh, sort of uh, nostalgia kits. Uh, especially during uh, World Cup competitions, mm. and then, then they seem to abandon it. And, and certainly, Score Draw, having looked at their website, as, appears to have you know really entered that market with with a degree of enthusiasm. So it could be that, from the perspective of Umbro, that the production runs, um, you know, that they are used to to, to, to big sell, sell, selling runs, um, they just felt that it wasn't worth it from their point of view, and they'll just pick up the license fee uh, if, if there is one going from Score Draw. Score Draw. Might have suppliers who are who are willing to make you know a thousand kits or five thousand kits, uh, and Umbro might have a, a minimum order number of fifty thousand, and they say, well, right, you know, okay, yeah. and also that they feel, well, yeah, why why aren't we cannibalizing ourselves? Because uh, I appreciate that Umbro it was owned, it was acquired by Nike, and I think then Nike went went and sold it again. But from Nike's position, they say, well, you know, if, if we're trying to sell the the England twenty two kit. Why are we also trying to sell the 1996 one? Yeah, because yeah. if somebody buy, people aren't going to buy both. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. we so we end up, uh, you know, doing doing more work for for no extra money, um, and, and of course, yeah, we've got the extra costs incurred ourselves because we've got to have you know two contracts with suppliers and uh, manufacturers and so on. So I, I suspect that's that's what it is. But yeah, I think that they're, they're cheaper. I think it's forty quid normally for a for a retro shirt. Uh, Nike, uh, I think they're they're now selling the England kit. It's, it's more than seventy quid. Yeah. Uh, and and then if you want the the match authentic one, it's one hundred and fifteen. You know, judging by the way Finley just slammed that door, he may not be able to <laughs> he may not be able to read, but perhaps it seems he can hear because the, the mere mention of Aldi and he was off. He's gone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, our penultimate question comes from Jonathan Bagley. And this is certainly an area we have not explored before. It's an interesting question. Jonathan Bagley says, I've listened to every episode as soon as they've been released. That's very kind of you, Jonathan. Thank you. My question is about the food and drink provided to the press and broadcasters at matches. Who pays for this? If it's the club, what benefits do they get? 
As we know, most football clubs are losing money, so could do without this extra expense. And I, I can add a bit of context here, Kieran, having spent mm, a lot of time. I have to in, say this, this is this is your question, not yeah, mine. Well, it's well, I, I know. I see. I don't know the, the the finances involved, obviously, but I can tell you there is a certain there, there is some uh, some Premier League clubs even at the lower end who will provide very nice pies and sandwiches, but they are pies mm. and sandwiches. Whereas at the upper end, Arsenal, for example, supply a, a very very extravagant. Uh, buffet, Thai buffet, hot buffet, um, to about 200 people. So some clubs will have separate canteens, for, for want of a better word, for photographers, for example, where things are more basic. But a club like Arsenal where – and you're looking at about 200 people from around the world. It's not just local press people. It's people from around the world, mm. ex-players who are there, pundits. So there's a lot of people in these places. The West Ham one in the old stadium was very good as well. Um, so – they're catering for 200 people, probably from, if it's a three o'clock kickoff, from 10 o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night. So it, it must be some considerable expense, but I've got no idea who pays it, Karen. Um My understanding is that it is provided on a gratis basis by the clubs. Um, yeah, you, you don't really want to annoy uh, a journalist no. unless you have no. to. So, you know, to say, uh, well, here's here's your lunch or we're charging you two pounds for a cup of tea and four four pounds for a pie and, and so on. Um, that, that's just going to cause unnecessary resentment mm. uh, because let's face it, there are many occasions during the year when the club will want that uh, journalist to say something positive. Um, I, I know I, I've been fortunate enough to be to sort of been invited to a few clubs uh, affairs and and uh, invited into the press room and so on and uh, it's always been provided on a free basis yeah. um I, I would be very surprised if if the clubs would would go down that particular route because there is a, a symbiotic relationship between uh football and the media that they need uh, each other um you know they they both provide benefits for each other uh, and it's there's, there's, you know, why poke the bear unnecessarily by, especially if, if you know, if one club breaks ranks and it gets known as the only club in the Premier League to charge for, for drinks and, and food, then, then you know, subconsciously you're going to have that at the back of your mind when you're doing your copy. Mm. I believe uh, Simon Jordan tried to do that. Uh, it didn't last long as an experiment. Right. No, they're always free these press rooms, but I. I it, It'd be interesting if anybody from Arsenal was listening to this. I wonder if they mm. could give us a, a ballpark figure because it's. I imagine it's it's. There must be ten, twenty thousand. That's a rough. That's a, a two. Somewhere between ten and twenty thousand. That's my, going to be my guess. The the pecking order in press rooms is really interesting. I oh remember, really? Ah, absolutely. Um, I think I was at Blackburn. But so I was always very excited to go into press rooms. It was it was fascinating. Mm. You meet some you meet some really interesting people, and you get free food, which is great. Um, <laughs> but it, it's very much. Uh, I remember there was like three three chairs, three laptops available in like a sort of prime position, and I, I asked somebody why why nobody was sitting there already because the rest of the place was crowded. And I went, oh, they're the, they're the red tops. They're the uh, they're the tabloid seats. They are. Oh right. It's it's very much local local uh, radio, local press at the bottom. Then the Independent and the Guardian, and then the tabloid guys come swaggering in like extras <laughs> in a Guy Ritchie film. Uh, they are they're, they're really the governors. It's uh, it's very uh, don't touch Martin Samuel's pie. Whatever you do. Um, 
I think it's fairly obvious that no one does touch Martin Samuel's pies, but there you are. He's a very good journalist. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a very good journalist, very good journalist, but they, they do defer to the... Well, it's, well, it's the same in the pecking, that's just the pecking order afterwards. It's, they, they speak to the, the TV first, and then it's the tabloid journalist, and then the mm. poor old radio journalist about two hours later are still waiting for those crumbs from the table, as you say. Our last question comes from Jay Smith. Uh, and Jay says, with the investment in Wakefield from the new American investment firm and looking at what Red Bull did in Germany, can you see other wealthy investment firms buying lower-level league clubs in areas with big potential like Wakefield to build them up with big investment to get them climbing the leagues the way Leipzig did in Germany? I think this is a, a cracking question. Mm. And I think this was – I think we had this question on the uh... – on the quiz, which is the biggest city in the country yeah. without uh, a football team. Yeah, which came as a surprise to most people, I think. Yeah. Um, Wakefield has a population of 340,000 people. Mm. Brighton's got a population of 290,000. Mm. They make a lot, so, they make yeah, a lot that, of noise, though, don't they? So it just sounds it sounds bigger. <laughs> well, synchronised tutting. Yeah, it, it's an art. <laughs> the price of this quinoa. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, we are we are seeing increased interest uh, in 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 football from investment groups. Um, they they genuinely believe that it is undervalued. Mm. Um, they, they genuinely believe that the the broadcast rights uh, can be uh, expanded, uh, especially on a global basis. Um, so th- there is there is a lot of logic to what Jay has said because. Um, what you don't want to do is to, is to buy a, a a football club in a in an area which is ultimately a relatively small catchment um, because that puts an automatic ceiling on on the on the opportunities and ambitions of the club. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it's a good call out by him. Um, you, you can see the benefits, um, and yeah, certainly what Red Bull have done. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's been expensive for Red Bull, yeah. but they would always argue that the the publicity that gets them because you know, uh, and I know it's I know it's RB Leipzig, but we all know what RB stands for. Yeah, uh, it, and it's uh, and it's not it's not the wording which is used by the club necessarily. Although it's quite controversial when Red Bull did that in Germany, that that's something that investors here wouldn't have to overcome, would it? In existing rules about big investors taking over clubs like they had in Germany, which Red Bull seemed to break. I mean, here, uh, buying a club like Wakefield would seem to be fairly low risk, uh, low expenditure, but with a huge chance of success. Yeah, yeah, there's there's, there's a very big upside, and and uh, uh, until the fan led review goes through, and, and we get an, you know, and also an independent regulator wouldn't probably go down to that level of football. Ah, oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. It's very kind of you. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, then please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kira Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, as always, folks, thank you so much for your support for the show. Um, 
we we are genuinely grateful and you know the feedback and, and uh, you know whilst we whilst we laugh at ourselves in terms of the huge backlog <laughs> of uh, of emails that we've not got round to to uh, answering on the Sunday show um you know we, we appreciate the fact that you you genuinely care about the game so much that 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 you you send them in and we we will get around to them even even if even if we stop doing the regular show one day yeah when when football is being cleaned up so much that there's no need for us to have a news show uh, we, we'll still we'll we'll just double up the numbers of the uh, of the Sunday show um, but uh, if if you want to support the show that's that's great through Patreon. Um, but there's other ways in in which you can do that, and that's to go on to your uh, uh, that's to go on to your podcast app and, and give us a review. And if you can give us five stars, it, it helps. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, if, if you want to write a review, you could even say the uh, you'd rather have the show presented by Macho Man Randy Savage and Tory MP Chris Pincher. <laughs> We wouldn't care. We wouldn't bother us. I'm not saying <laughs> which of those I'd most like to see, uh, but yeah, that's the way it goes. Oh, that's going to worry Guy, that one. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>